0: Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Today we're going to talk about the electrical grid and how it is rigged against reliability. And this is a subject I've been wanting to talk about for a while. I haven't known exactly as much about it as I want, but I have a guest today who's really going to help us out. So here's a little background it's very common for us to hear in the news that solar and wind are cheaper than coal and gas. You'll hear all of these different, uh, you'll see all these different headlines about this, celebrating this. And specifically, you might, if you read the stories more carefully, you'll often hear that solar and wind are bidding at lower prices than coal or gas are. And so you hear like, oh, there are these electricity markets and solar and wind are outbidding coal and gas. And that sounds like, well, I'm in favor of competition. I'm in favor of markets. They're winning on the free market. Okay, well that sounds good as long as they're winning and it's a market, it might, it's, must be free and that that must be a good situation. And yet at the same time, there's something very clearly off with this idea that solar and wind are winning on some kind of market. And one fact that I've pointed out many times on this show is that in general, the more of this supposedly cheap solar and wind you add to the grid, the higher electricity prices are for the consumer. And so that points to there's something off with this claim that they're cheaper if when they're used, they make it more expensive. And then intuitively, we know that solar and wind are not reliable. And there's something really off with comparing prices of a reliable versus an unreliable. That just doesn't make sense. So there's something off there. Um, when I've been frustrated for a while studying electricity and hearing these different claims and knowing that in some very severe way, the market is rigged, but not knowing all the details uh, about it. And recently I met a guy named uh, Tom Stacy, and I first learned about him. He did a really impressive report for the Institute for Energy Research um, on the real price, like the proper price of solar and wind versus existing coal, existing natural gas and showing that the real price was higher. And we started talking and he just had an understanding of electricity markets that was a lot deeper than mine was. And he's thought about this exact issue of rigging for a long time. So we had some interesting conversations via email and on the phone. And I thought, okay, uh, listeners would really benefit from having him on. So Tom Stacey, welcome to Power Hour.
0: Hey, thanks, Alex. Uh, Thanks for inviting me to be on the show with you.
1: My pleasure. All right. So let's start off with who is Tom Stacy? What is your background and how did you become interested in this issue of these rigged electricity markets in particular?
0: Yeah, I didn't expect to become interested whatsoever. I have a hybrid business degree from Ohio State University called industrial marketing. And after college, I worked in injection molding machinery sales, capital equipment sales for about 20 years. And that gave me really good real-life perspective on the practical economics um, such as how capital equipment utilization rates and gross margin percentages impacted uh, determined really my customers budget for machinery so also how policy changes of government and policy changes of my customers automotive customers can cause financial outlooks to reverse course really quickly these,
1: so the capital, just to interrupt for one second, the, the capital uh-huh. utilization rate, uh, I think we'll see that that's going to come up prominently in terms of evaluating the prices of these different things, right?
0: It, it, it's, a, it's a component of the levelized cost of electricity that you mentioned earlier, the reports that I've done for, uh, for the Institute for Energy Research. Um, yes. So in the electricity business, we call the utilization rate of of an electric generator, we call that its capacity factor. It's an unfortunate name. It's really an energy factor. It has nothing to do with capacity. It has to do with, with how much you use a piece of equipment and not really so much about that pieces of, piece of equipment's maximum contribution to reliability. So. Um,
1: Got it. And we'll, we'll get into that. I just wanted to make that part sure. of it clear. So, sorry, go on with your story.
0: So yeah, so so these areas of of, uh, of of finance, if you will, and economics and policy um, utilization rates these these become very useful when you start to look at the electricity grid and the generators that work together on the electricity grid to give us the energy we need from minute to minute, but then the reliability of the system that we need, um, you know, three sixty five. Uh, so. In about 2007, you were you were asking me how I got into this, so in about 2007, the plastics industry was really, really weak um, in the Midwest, especially. I think NAFTA had hurt U.S. manufacturing, um, especially where labor content tended to be significant, and it is in the plastics industry. Um, automotive was also uh, trying to rein in costs and, and compete with, with overseas Automakers and so they were reneging on some big long-term contracts with heavily invested Tier One automotive suppliers, and putting work out for bid to companies that were ill-equipped to handle it. So I saw some sort of disingenuous markets um, and you know false pressure being put on to suppliers uh, by the automotive industry. Uh, you know, claiming that this other company who couldn't do a comparable job in quality or reliability was bidding this work at a lower price. And then they were holding that over the head of their, of their supplier who was heavily invested, right? So anyway, so business being really slow as it was in the mid-2000s, um, I was bored quite a bit of the time looking for other ways to be useful in the world. And as it turned out at that time, a wind developer from Australia had begun working behind the scenes with farmers and elected officials in my community sneaking around really. Um, Well, I was in a position to blow the whistle to the general public on that and fell into a role of community, community advocacy for preserving rural areas where I lived and protecting them from these enormous machines and the industrial sprawl of wind energy development. But I was more interested in the numbers uh than in the more subjective issues such as visual blight and noise and, and annoyance and things like that so i started networking with electric cooperative leaders uh starting with my local cooperative and then at the state level and then at the federal level um, working with vice presidents of engineering and vetting these ideas and learning really quickly you know what's going on here and uh, pretty soon i would constructed a pretty compelling case showing just how dependent the wind energy industry was and still is on sources of revenue other than selling electricity at prevailing wholesale market prices okay so they rely on other sources of revenue to a greater extent than they rely on what they sell their electricity for what do you
1: what do you mean other sources of revenue like what are so, the main examples so you've
0: got that? you've got taxpayer subsidy and then you have built-in ratepayer subsidy that comes in the form of regulation and the rules that regional grid operators have put in place that form so-called markets for wholesale markets for electricity so and and then thirdly you have power purchase agreements or private transactions between renewable suppliers and companies as if they could just ship their particular particular electron flow through the transmission system and have it end up just at this guy's meter, Amazon, for instance, just at their electric meters, as if they could actually consume just renewable power through our common transmission and distribution systems. Just not right. Just and, and,
1: not we'll, true. Get, and, so. and we're definitely gonna get into that in more depth, but I guess the basic idea yeah. seems to be just that the wind, like what we're paying for wind is far beyond the prices that they're charging on, that, that we see.
0: Sure. So, when it comes to tax subsidy, for instance, you know, you may say, "Well, I've already paid my taxes; they're gone." But what really happens there is, you know, if if uh, the wind industry, for instance, convinces government to forego their tax commitments, well, then the rest of us, our tax dollars, don't go as far. So, other programs that are needed, military, social programs, uh, you know, whatever it is that the government is spending our money on um, that, that isn't funded as well. So, so it it really is a cost to us, although not a direct cost out of our pockets. Right. So, uh, that happens, those things happen at the federal, state and local taxing levels here. So you noticed
1: these all, so you sort of became aware of all these like hidden costs or concealed costs of wind. And so then what was the next step?
0: Right. So, um, I began doing financial modeling of grids. Uh, just because I like Excel I like I like uh, visual basic programming and uh, and it's just the kind of stuff that I do I'm kind of a geek so um, I started modeling the electricity grid using all of the historical hourly data about load and supply and demand that I could get my hands on all of the historical data on all of the generating sources that I could get my hands on and all of the data on wind generation and solar generation. I put it all together in Excel. And then I I applied the appropriate costs from the levelized cost of electricity concepts to each resource. And then I could rerun the grid at different levels of wind and solar penetration and see what happened to the whole average system cost of electricity for the entire system. You know, you kind of have to look at the grid system as one machine and one financial entity. That's the way I feel about it when I plug something into the wall. I don't think, oh, you know, I'm plugging into wind power here. I think I'm plugging into a, a system, a very complex, coordinated system, you know, and it's really one entity with one cost that needs to be considered. So, as that one whole cost changes when you add or subtract different generating resources, um, you can then reverse your way you know, back your way into what the cost implications of that resource are so that's yeah, what i think I
1: this i just want to emphasize i think this is exactly what needs to happen and it's part of the reason why i wanted mm-hmm. to bring you on because what what happens all the time is what i sometimes call like partial cost accounting of things mm-hmm. the most obvious is when they say oh the price of solar panels has plummeted therefore solar is cheap and they're basically equating the price of solar with the price of solar panels but the real question is when I add this on, how much more expensive does it make electricity or how much cheaper does it make electricity? And what right. I want overall is I just want rely, you know, electricity with a certain amount of reliability at the yeah. lowest cost possible. And because it's an integrated system, what you really need to know with the prices is how does this affect the system as a whole and what's the lowest possible system cost and That's what does that what, consist of? And I just want to highlight yeah. that almost nobody is doing that
0: yeah that's that's basically the, the the output of my model is you know what is the lowest system cost possible given you know that you're imposing a certain amount of wind or solar or not and so uh, what
1: did you what were, what were your basic findings as you were doing that
0: well it, it imputes uh, a concept that i that i explain in detail in my levelized cost of electricity from existing resources reports that I did for the Institute for Energy Research that we call um, imposed cost of unreliables, okay? Um, And that essentially means you start to underutilize the reliable generators whenever it's windy and sunny, and as you underutilize them, that leaves them less revenue annually to pay for their debt and pay their ongoing fixed cost expenses, right? So if you lower their market share and then you lower their gross margin percentage as well, which happens in the in the uh, energy wholesale auctions, we can talk about later. Um, if you if you lower both both their market share and their gross revenue, you've really hurt whoever it is, whether it's energy or anything else. And that's that's really what happens. So. Um,
1: so then that drives the overall system cost up.
0: That draws, drives the overall system cost up because the assumption in the model is well, you either have to throw these big expensive power plants away and close them and foreclose on them and, and have them go into bankruptcy court, um, which has a whole other set of eventual costs and ramifications having to do with risk and the cost of borrowing, or you have to make them whole, you have to make them solvent, keep them solvent. And, and that requires something. So, you know, some other form of revenue, which drives up system costs. And I don't discriminate between kinds of revenue. I just look at the cost of building, operating, and maintaining different types of electric generating facilities. Where that money comes from, I don't care. But the less you use an expensive power plant that isn't fully paid for, the more your the higher your break even cost of every unit of energy that you produce, because your fixed costs actually go up when your utilization, your fixed costs per unit of energy go up when you use it, use the facility less. Right, it's so if you're using
1: go- a natural gas, I mean, if you're using like a nuclear plant 40% of the time, instead right. of 95% of the time, right. then what happens, still, then, it, then you have it's
0: to It's still got to deal with the NRC costs, it's got to deal with its mortgage costs, it's got to deal with its, fixed maintenance costs it's got to deal with its tax burden all of these things don't go away just because you're not bringing in as much revenue right so you right can because the
1: consumers are not paying it directly it needs to come from somewhere it needs to
0: come from somewhere where you got to close it okay
1: right so let's um let's talk about these electricity markets and i just want to give the kind of sure. basic impression I think people have. if So just in terms of the grid, I think one important feature of the grid is that it's it's always got to balance, if that's the right word, supply and demand. And that's one of the oh, amazing yeah. features. If you look at like electricity use, you know, at any given point, you can plug something in and you have a lot of confidence that it's going to work. Yeah. And and then, you know, demand will go up and down, you know, during the day, there's certain kinds of cycles, there's certain kinds of seasonal cycles. And the set of power generation sources that are the grid managed to track this really well. And that's just an incredibly impressive type of thing, It which just intuitively does not seem like a whole bunch of things relying on the sun and the wind are going to do, because those are going to go too low or too high uh, relative to what you actually need. And so- we have, right. that's that's like the grid is this amazing thing. And then we hear about these markets. And I think the idea people have, but I don't think it's that specific is, okay, uh, solar, wind, uh, gas, coal, like they all say something like, oh, I can do it for 10 cents a kilowatt hour. I can do it for 15 cents a kilowatt hour. I can do it for 5 cents a kilowatt hour. And then people bid, and then somehow the cheapest one wins out. Now. That makes sense to me if they're all pretty much on demand, like if they can all provide it on demand. So can you explain, like, let's assume for a second, just for simplicity's sake, that there were no unreliables on the grid, like how do electricity markets work and how well do they work? Like just in terms of competing sort of apples to apples type of bidding competition when they're all reliables.
0: So that's really the way things were uh, from the time these markets were, were designed. Um, and I, I don't know, that was somewhere between 30 and 50 years ago, I believe, when, when this system of auctions for energy uh, came about. And you know but there are really two reasons for it. One is to make sure that we use the cheapest sources as much as we can first. And then if we don't have enough of the really cheap sources because demand gets higher, Then we use the next most expensive source. And if that's not enough, we use the next most expensive source. So we pretty much had nuclear and hydro at the bottom. You know, they were the cheapest sources because their fuel is cheap. And we're only really talking here about fuel costs. People are bidding their fuel costs into these auctions, not their mortgage costs or anything else, okay? So these are these are hourly energy auctions, and to well, make,
1: I think I need to explain. So why is that that they're only bidding because they need to pay off their infrastructure?
0: They do, but when we get to how this auction really works, you'll see that okay. that some of them have the revenue to not only pay for their current costs but to build more plants. Okay, got it. So 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 everyone you know bids in private, you know, basically at their marginal cost or their fuel cost. Okay. And, and all of these bids are taken in by the grid operator and the grid operator sorts them by cheapest first and then the mo- next most expensive and next most expensive. And they all have a certain amount of uh, capacity or, or or you know, maximum megawatts that can come from each source. And, and the grid operator says, okay, demand's gonna be this high. So we need to keep this bid and this bid and this bid and this bid, and this bid. but these more expensive bids up here, we don't need to keep. So, Instead of paying the ones that clear the market or accepted in, you know, as power sources for the coming hour, instead of paying them what they bid, the, the price they bid, they say, well, what did the guy bid who was the most expensive one we had to keep? Okay. That's called the marginal bidder or the marginal resource. Whatever that guy bid, we're going to pay everybody else that amount. So, okay,
1: can I, can I just ask one thing about that? So yes. just, just so we have like a concrete example. So let's say it's a hot day in California pre-unreliables yes. era. And so we need to use what's called a natural gas peaker plant right. to provide the air conditioning. And let's say just as a random number, they're charging 20 cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, And the baseline, the nuclear might be charging five cents a kilowatt hour, but -hmm. you need the nuclear can't provide it up to the peak because it's not equipped to do that. So you have to pay for the peak, you pay 20 cents at the peak, but then you pay everyone the 20 cents, including the nuclear,
0: right? Correct. Correct. That's correct. And, you know, since the nuclear guy is cheapest, he's going to be selected first all year long, whether there's whether it's high demand or low demand, he's going, to be, he's going to get a high market share. So his utilization rate or capacity factor is going to be very high because every, every time they bid their power out there, it's the cheapest. So it's going to be selected first. So that was great. So you've got your cheapest fuel source out there making a lot of gross margin. Well, that, What is that gross margin really meant to pay for that's worth my money as a consumer here plugging something into the wall? you know, why should I pay that nuclear plant so much? Well, as it turns out, at least in the way that I've thought through this, that bonus gross margin, if you will, that's paid to the low fuel cost suppliers is really a reliability payment. It ensures that that generator is going to be available when prices are highest. It ensures that 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 generator has enough, m- enough money to cover all its costs and to potentially invest in another plant using that same technology, in this case, nuclear, because it's a profitable thing to do. Whereas, you know, the peaker plants, they don't get to run very often, only when there's a really high demand. And they don't make much gross margin there either because, you know, they're either the marginal bidder and just clearing their costs or somewhere just below that and making a small profit. So the whole thing was really almost uh, symphonic, you would say, in in its in its simplicity and how well it worked and how efficiently it worked. But I came to think of these big bigger gross margins as reliability payments or capacity payments is is the term that's used in the wholesale markets, um, and what they mean is reliability, uh, reliable capacity payments.
1: Well, let me so. A thing that occurs to me about this because I think one thing is we've got this whole context where this is a government monopoly in many, many circumstances. And so when we're talking about a market, it is, I mean, there's a lot of choice being exercised in terms of how this market works. And it's not implausible to me that it can work this way, but it's definitely not like a pure free market competition that's uh, arriving at this. And so I think that we just have to recognize in the first place, like it's a government created or manufactured well, market.
0: I would say it's a response to the old fully regulated regime where- Well, hold know, on, hold on.
1: Can I just say one thing about that? And then yeah. I, I, I think the point yeah. you're making is, is important, but it's, yeah. it's just that you could set up a system where you didn't have everybody get paid the marginal costs. You could have right. a different system if you're exactly. setting it, and I think it's just important to recognize. Okay, this is set up a certain way. If it's set up a certain way, then there have to be certain reasons for it. And if those reasons applied when it was all reliable, those reasons may well completely not apply when it's not reliable. And an idea you've given, I mean, an, an idea I've gotten from you is that it could, you know it could work very differently. Like, why not have it be that you you have bids taken for like a year's worth of power. Like, and you just, you just trench it out. And so you say like, okay, who can give me the best price? Like that's worth it for, um, for all the know, for, mm-hmm. yeah. For, and, and like have people compete for that and not pay them ever. Right. A peaker price like that right. would probably be cheaper. Just have them fit in a healthy profit margin for them. But it's yeah. going to have to be. They're not going to. It's not going to be based on getting the peaker price. It's just going to be mm-hmm. based on what makes sense. So let's say if they want a ten percent return, then it'll it'll just be ten percent. Like that could end up easily being way cheaper to do it that way. Right. So I just want to highlight that this is a government pseudo market in many ways, and so we have to be very aware that that. That it's being manipulated in a certain way and, and not at all assume it's the same thing as, oh, I'm selling apples and you're selling apples, and we're just competing
0: that's that's very, very true, Alex. It's a good way to put it, I agree yeah. okay,
1: now you were going to make the point about how this evolved and how, given the context of a monopoly, it was an improvement over the previous system, so I, I interrupted. Yeah, so, so I don't want
0: to go back and talk a whole lot about the previous system. I only know it secondhand from you know some some of the uh, the veterans of the industry that I've gotten to know over the over the past ten years. Uh, so, you know, it's really not for me to describe what the regulated monopoly picture looked like. But this sort of wholesale market system. Um, was seen to be a great improvement over that you know you know human nature is for greed you know to fulfill our own needs and then some and that can be a healthy thing right but it can also be abused and taken too far okay um and just the way price uh price fixing can occur in other areas so say in gasoline, you know, with OPEC and, and withholding supplies to drive prices up and so forth. Um, that can happen in the electricity business. And, and that's why the regulated monopoly system required so much government oversight to make sure that, that utilities supplying power were profitable, but not too profitable. Like right.
1: That. I mean, so so. Just the, I mean, I'll give you my take on this, and you can tell me if you think it's right. That sure. I mean, the, as I understand it, like a lot of these government utilities, it's a cost plus uh, model. So mm-hmm. basically, you know, normally, right. how do you make a profit? You make a profit. Like if we're both selling apples, the way we make a profit right. is okay. If Tom can make his apples more cost effectively then he can sell his apples for a dollar an apple, but he can make uh-huh. them for 80 cents an apple. And so he makes 20 yeah. cents an apple profit. Whereas for me, I yeah. can make them for a dollar and one cents an apple. So I'd take a loss at a dollar and he'd make, and so that's, that's great. And so you get you get profit for creating value, but then the issue is, okay, if it's owned by the government and just one person is providing it, how do you decide on the price? It's not a price that's emerging from competition. It's So then how do you set it? Well, if you just set it at the cost, well, there's a whole issue of, of, are you incentivized to constrain costs, which is going to be one of the big problems, but how are you yeah, going to make a
0: profit? Money with no profit? Yeah, margin, right?
1: you have to get, you have to get paid. So what they come up with is usually called cost plus, That's correct. is that you, you get, you get paid your cost plus, let's say 15% uh, profit. But then mm-hmm. the issue is, if, if, if I tell you, I'm going to pay you 15% on whatever your cost is, you're probably going to find a good way to rack up a lot of costs. Like you'll say, you know what? We need to be you extra are. reliable. So let me build a nuclear plant just in case something really goes wrong. And then, oh, you get to make a billion dollars in profit on that. You know so that, that that's you know, there, very hazardous. There, there, there's yes. a name
0: for that. Do you know what that's called? What? It, the, what you're describing is called the Averick johnson effect. Have you ever heard of that?
1: No, not by that name.
0: So look at look at look up the Averick Johnson. You have your listeners, uh, your, your your podcast uh, subscribers look up the Averick Johnson effect, and it's it's a perfectly beautifully written uh, description of of what you just said. That that if your profit margin is going to be fixed at fifteen percent on whatever you invest in, well, let's just invest in more things that we don't need, so that we get more profit. It'll only be fifteen percent but at least we'll we'll build and own more things that we can get 15% on. So
1: Yeah, I mean, you can, and you could do that infinitely if there were no, cons- I mean, you'd always find things that I like, could build another plant or not.
0: Okay, so that's, that's. In, in that's a way, that's what, that's what renewables are because they are fixed cost. They're infrastructure that doesn't replace reliable's infrastructure. So they are in effect just that. They are, a form of taking advantage of the average Johnson effect.
1: That's really interesting. That makes yeah. sense. Uh, that makes sense. So, so we have that, okay, we've got this sort of cost plus system of this, again, it's the context of a government monopoly. And there's a whole question of, could you make it not a government monopoly? And I think you could somehow, but when it's a government monopoly you have this big hazard of the old way of doing it, and so you come up with these markets, but these markets are definitely not free markets. In the conventional sense. And so there's a lot of hazard. There's just hazard to them. And there's a lot of, there's nothing necessarily like, oh, the the way it was, was necessarily the best way. So you have to be really aware of the incentives. And so then the question is what happened when, but it, it seemed like it worked pretty well. When there were reliables, because what would generally happen is uh, these base load, these very low cost reliables like nuclear, hydro, they would at least occasionally get paid quite a bit of profit margin, uh, you know, above their fuel cost, and then that would help pay for their infrastructure costs, and that would help pay for more investment. Right. And so, in general, you got more and more reliables and you had the grid working really well. Okay, but now you what more happens-
0: You got more cheaper liables, the, the ones with the yeah. lowest fuel costs, right? So, yeah. yeah.
1: And so then, then what what happens though once we allow unreliables on the scene and we allow them to bid when their fuel cost
0: right. per hour is zero? If you agree with me that that bonus gross margin paid to the low fuel cost suppliers in the energy market is really a capacity payment or reliability payment, well, then, when you have somebody that doesn't provide firm capacity or reliability come in and also get that gross margin, in fact, they get even more than nuclear. They have no fuel cost whatsoever, so they get the largest gross margin of all. They always get selected when their fuel is available, the wind currents or the sunshine. Okay, and, so they're
1: going to. So, just to make sure I understand that, that whenever whenever the sun shines or the wind blows, they're going to be willing to they'll charge the lowest price because it's always worth it for them to get something.
0: Remember they don't, charge a price. They, they don't charge a price. They place a bid and they are paid a price, the price of the clearing bidder.
1: Right. Okay. Right, right.
0: Right. So, so they're going to bid at their marginal cost, which is zero. Or in the case of wind that gets a subsidy for every megawatt hour that it produces, they can bid below zero that all that does is it really ensures that they will be selected first and they will never be told, you know, we don't need you today, right? Even though the wind's blowing, we don't need you because you're too expensive. That's never gonna happen because they don't have any fuel costs. So they're always selected and they're earning bonus gross margin that was meant to pay for system reliability that they cannot provide.
1: Got it, okay. So the like in practice, if we just took the example before of like the natural gas, uh, peaker plant situation with the nuclear, it could be, okay, if there's a lot of wind blowing at a given time, uh, like they'll, they'll in effect say, I bid negative two cents a kilowatt hour. Like I'm going to bid that. You're not, they're not going to actually have to give the government money. Um, No,
0: they're not. No, no, but
1: because they're they're not providing at all because they know that, okay, the nuclear is going to do five cents and uh, these numbers are probably too high, but you know, and the, um, like the coal will do eight cents and the peaker and maybe the peaker won't make it on when the wind is blowing, but then, uh, okay. So then, then they're getting, if, if it, if it clears at 10 cents, then they're getting this huge, uh, they get 10 cents
0: plus their subsidies. Yeah. So,
1: and that means that say a nuclear plant might not get used or particularly if it's lower, like if it's, well, first of all,
0: First of all, whenever wind and solar, whenever the wind's blowing and sun's shining, those peaker plants do not get used. So the clearing price gets lowered for that hour. So the gross margins of everybody's gross margins go down. Okay?
1: Right.
0: You might say, well, that's a really good thing, right? So that's one one thing that happens. The other thing that happens is, well, now the nuclear plants or the coal plants or uh, the combined cycle gas plants that are, you know, more workhorses than the peaker plant and more efficient, they're they're not being used as often. So your market shares is being hurt and your gross margin is being hurt. Just like we were talking about in the plastics industry with the automotive business back in the mid 2000s. Okay, so-
1: So fewer um, units at lower rates per fewer, unit.
0: Fewer units of sale, right? At a lower gross margin per unit of sale. So not only do your annual sales shrink, But your profit margin on each of those shrinks okay so it doesn't take long with that that's a one-two punch doesn't take long for you in trouble
1: and then to your point before but we still need the unreliables still rely on them we still need those reliables
0: we really can't close them i mean california and and germany i guess are are some of the the closest examples to where we get close to the edge of, well, we don't have enough reliable power plants, we have to import power from other regions, or we have to keep plants open, even though they're not self-sufficient. We have to just give them money so they stay open so that the grid doesn't shut down every time there's high demand, right? And so this, so is, this
1: is what's happening when people are saying, like, nuclear's asking for a subsidy, and people are saying, oh, look, nuclear is so expensive, it needs a subsidy. But basically, you, because you stopped paying the nuclear for their reliability. Like you screwed them over. And added you did. The,
0: yeah. That's because the reliability payment is is part of that gross margin in the energy market. Well, so PJM, some of these other regional grid operators, they, they said, well, okay, so we need to supplement. And so we're going to create something called a capacity market or a reliability market. In addition to the energy market. Well, the way they devised it, it's very sluggish. It, it uh it says okay put in a bid for reliability and we'll make sure we have enough and we'll pay the clearing price just like we do in the energy market um but we're not we're going to pay you now for reliability that you provide three years from now all right and for at most it's for one year okay and the next year they'll have another auction so it's hard to invest and it's hard to borrow money uh, based on one year at a time when you're talking about pieces of equipment that take 20, 30, or 40 years to pay for, okay? And you've it also just got- It sounds like it, a bad band-aid. It is a bad band-aid and it, it's also a second capacity payment. When they did this, they didn't do away with the bonus gross margins in the energy market. They said, well, well, we'll, just, we'll just keep that in place and we'll add this on top of it, which is inefficient. I and mean, what really needed to happen, Alex, I don't know if you're ready for me to talk about this, but...
1: I what, am ready I, for you to talk about
0: it. Yeah, so, so what needs to happen is that those bonus, gr- bonus gross margins need to be tied to the reliability that the energy bidder actually can provide over time. Over that 247365. So let's say your nuclear plant is 90% reliable. So it's you know, just as to throw a number out there. It's a it's a complicated number, but uh so I won't talk about it. But let's say they're 90% reliable. And let's say wind is 10% reliable, okay? Well, of those bonus gross margins, wind really only deserves you know, one ninth of what nuclear deserves. So there would be a way to prorate those bonus gross margins according to the reliability that's actually provided. Okay, so that would be one way to address it. Another way, as you suggested, um, and then we talked about on the phone, would be to basically turn these hourly markets, which look like vertical bars on a a graph that has time as the x-axis into horizontal markets. It's where you're bidding for long periods of time, chunks of power. Um, There are several ways that these wholesale markets could be altered uh, or replaced uh, that would promote competition, would keep prices uh, where they should be, but would be fair and, and price reliability at the cost that it really has.
1: And that, I mean, that's the key is no matter what. And that's, I think the number one thing that has to happen is reliability has to be priced into the price of electricity.
0: And it has to be priced properly. You know, when I did levelized cost of electricity analysis, one of the main breakdowns that DOE will do in in their LCOE or levelized cost analysis is here are the fixed costs in a per megawatt hour basis. So over the life of of, uh, a coal plant, fixed costs will be divided by how much electricity, that coal plant is likely to produce over its 40 or 50 year lifespan. Okay. So they'll have two, uh, you know, say one cent per kilowatt hour for, uh, fuel and three cents a kilowatt hour for the actual power plant itself and so on. But the actual power plant itself is what they call a fixed cost. I equate fixed costs on the system to reliability or capacity. Capacity and variable costs, primarily fuel, but also wear and tear on equipment as it's being used, um, but mostly it's fuel. That those are variable costs, and I can I relate those to energy costs. So when you look at levelized costs, about 70% of all levelized cost of electricity is fixed cost or reliability cost in my mind. 30% of it is fuel cost or energy cost. Well, when you look at that at the wholesale markets, they've got that ratio reversed. 70% of the money that's trade changing hands in in wholesale markets is trading hands in the energy market. Thirty Only 30% in the reliability markets.
1: The capacity so, market, you
0: mean? The capacity market, yeah. And that, I use those interchangeably here because I, I don't think Yeah, I think reliability is
1: a better term.
0: I do too. I, that's really what it is. Uh, it doesn't mean nameplate capacity the term the term capacity by itself has really no meaning you have to either say nameplate capacity or capacity value or firm capacity contribution right but it, it it's really an ambiguous word unless you clarify it so reliability reliable capacity is really where where you want to focus your attention here not nameplate has nothing to do with that.
1: So let me, um, so I just want to keep highlighting that I think the fundamental is that the reliability needs to be priced in and there are different ways of, uh, of doing that, but it's totally sure. being screwed up right now. And so all the pricing right now, it's, I mean, my analogy that I always use is just like the reliable and the unreliable worker at your company. Yes. So, you know, you have yes. somebody who's working 40 hours a week and charging you $15 an hour. And then somebody says, oh, I'll I'll come in a third of the time, but I'm not going to tell you when. And I'll charge $14 an hour. And you say, okay, great. I'm going to pay you. But you need to have the reliable person on standby uh, all the time. And so if you rig it so that you stop paying him, eventually he's not going to be able to feed his family and he'll just stop working, or you have to keep paying him, and then you're going to have to also pay. So the unreliable worker, it does fundamentally, and there's some qualification to this, but it doesn't. Replace costs in your company. It add adds costs to your company, and fundamentally, with the unreliables, they don't replace costs on the grid. They add costs to the grid. Uh, now, you have you have some, and, and this relates to one of the last questions I wanted to ask. I think you have some. I want to hear more about how the because because with these capacity markets and other things, people do say in some of these agreements. I think they'll say like, "Oh, solar." It, it's basically like it's 25% reliable or it's 35% reliable. What's wrong with the current attempts to price in reliability? And like you, you mentioned something like wind should be a ninth of nuclear. I think it's often treated as it should be a quarter or a third of nuclear.
0: Yeah, so, so you know, I don't want to get too geeky on you in, in this show, but you really do need to find somebody, you know, to do a show with you that explains the reliability metrics that are being used by the wholesale uh, the wholesale market operators the main one is called effective load carrying capability okay or elcc and what it says basically is if you add a megawatt of wind to the system how many more customers can be supplied reliably over time, given all the other generators are still going to be there, okay. Well, you can see right away that's rigged, because all the other generators aren't always going to be there. So why would you make an assumption about the future that you know is not going to be correct, right? So um, this th- this metric itself needs to needs to uh, be questioned and and a better measure of reliability needs to be devised uh, for for especially for these unreliables for wind and solar uh, by name one way to do that uh, was was developed by the market monitor for the midwest uh, independent system operator the grid operator for the middle part of the country Um, years ago by their market monitor um and it was called uh hang on a second i have to remember what this what what the word is for this um it was the mean of the lowest quartile of generation across peak load hours of the year so they would say okay take all the peak load hours of the year and look what wind produced during those hours last year okay well what was what was the worst wind did during that period and what was the worst 25 percent of what wind did take the average of that lowest 25 percent and call that the reliability well uh, that the grid operators monitor market monitor at that time calculated that i know how to calculate it i've talked to him and i calculate it the same way at 2.7 percent of nameplate capacity so if you build a hundred megawatt wind farm, you get two point seven megawatts of reliability out of it. Okay, not thirteen or fifteen percent like the grid operators give it using effective load carrying capability. So somehow that got pushed around and swept under the rug. And uh, David Patton, the guy from uh, Potomac Economics, would never talk about it again after that. I couldn't get a hold of him, and he knew I wanted to talk to him. And it just disappeared off the face of the earth. I have no and idea this why. Is a
1: huge, this is a huh. huge issue. Oh, no, it you, is. If you treat, because it's a really good question to ask because you've made the point to me, okay, there's unreliables, but you can't count it necessarily as having zero reliability. So in some sense, oh, that's there's correct. some reliability. But if it's 2.7%, that really puts it in perspective right. versus something well, like nuclear versus if you're using 15%. I've even heard higher numbers than that then it's just, again, you're totally not pricing in reliability.
0: Yeah, even in the in the current attempts to have a reliability market, they have far overvalued uh, the unreliables, wind and solar, by using this effective load carrying capability metric that was developed out at uh, UC Berkeley, out near you, so. Um, yeah, that, that needs to be, you need to drill down on that at some point, I think that would be very useful to to everybody, and hopefully you can affect some policy change, Alex. Um, I've been at this for longer than you, uh, not as well as you, uh, but I've worked hard at the state level to affect policy, and I've had some success there. But these big things that need to happen, man, I don't know who can do it. I don't know, I hope you can.
1: Well, there's definitely definitely, your, your thinking has definitely helped me get clear, which for me is always this, the first step toward influence is just getting clear. So then I can break it down of course. Um, to others. So um, let's just talk briefly about, you mentioned this earlier, but I want to talk about it specifically because you have some really good points on it, uh, power purchase agreements. So what are they? And you have this really compelling okay. point that you consider them all to be fraudulent, which I'm oh, always a fan of points
0: like that. They're fraudulent yeah. in that they, they don't- but What are perform- they first? Okay, yeah, power purchase agreements. This is, this is it. Look, look up REBA, R-E-B-A or the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance. It's essentially a group of companies that have committed to each other and, and to their customer base as if it were a good thing that they are going to run their operations on 100% renewable energy by some future date. So the way they go about this is they go out into this fake marketplace that's aside from the wholesale marketplace, okay? And they will contact a wind developer or a solar developer and they'll say, I wanna buy all of the power from your wind and solar plants, you know, for the next 10 years, I'm gonna buy all of it or I'm gonna buy this percentage of it. And I'm gonna, you know, and they 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 settle on a price for that, you know, in a, typically an above market price, but maybe not depending on how much subsidy, uh, the renewables guys are already getting. Um, So so that all sounds fine at that point, right? The question is, how do you deliver electricity from a generator in the northwest corner of a state like Ohio uh, to an Amazon uh, data center in Columbus, Ohio, in the middle of the state, and have those electrons just flow straight to Amazon's electric meter and into there and not to anybody else well it doesn't happen the transmission system is just like the water pipes in in a municipality right the city has a reservoir of water and they have pumps and they pump out through all these pipes and all the water goes to everybody's house okay fine and dandy what if i like to drink coca-cola but i'm too lazy to go to the store i'm just going to call the store up and say hey would you dump some coca-cola into the city reservoir (laughs) for me you know, and then I can just turn on my kitchen sink, right, and fill up my glass and drink my Coca-Cola. I know how stupid that sounds, but that's exactly what per- power purchases it gets blended in. Purport to do right, it gets blended in. Nobody, nobody gets 100% Coca-Cola out of their spigot. Everybody gets a tiny bit, you know, and just depending on where it's put into the system. And that's that's where the laws of physics, you know, and that that wouldn't necessarily be a problem, except for these hidden costs of adding unreliables to the grid that we've already talked about, you know, losing market share, losing gross margin percentage. Um, and that ultimately affects disinterested parties. Well that's a no-no in trade. You know, you can't you can't have a discrete transaction between two people and then ask a third person to pay part of the cost of that transaction, right? So, you know, the Federal Trade Commission should be all over that. Why aren't well, they I, I mean, they're
1: saying, yeah, I mean, I think the FTC or I think it would just be a class action lawsuit. This is one of the few cases where I'm in favor of one, where yep. consumers just say, hey, I was led to believe that Amazon's using 100% solar and wind. And in fact, that's not happening at all. They're using the same percentage of solar and wind as everyone else. And, and furthermore, there could be another group of aggrieved so-called stakeholders who say, I, I want to charge Amazon damages for taking credit for the solar and wind I used and giving me the blame for huh. the coal and gas they use. Cause that's what's that's happening. When they when they say I'm hundred percent renewable, they're just taking credit for your solar and wind and they're giving you blame for their coal and gas and nuclear. And so it's 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 a total fraud.
0: It's it's a beautiful thing. I, I agree with you, Alex. I mean there are plenty of bright young ambitious lawyers in the world, probably too many. Some of them need to get on our side on
1: this, I think. Yeah, I've been pushing this for a while. I, I need to, I have a list of like pet, pro- it's always annoying when people have projects for others to do, because I get, a lot of people have projects that I should do, so I can sympathize. But if anyone wants to take this idea, it's, it's free of charge. I think it's a pretty good idea and it would be a huge service to the world. You could do the same thing with no GMO food, uh, by the way, that would be another, good one right. where you could make uh, a Let's fortune because human beings have engaged in GMO for a very long time. Uh, oh, fortunately, yeah. otherwise we wouldn't have any fruit. It's called we'll hybridization, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Let's, uh, as we wrap up, we've talked about some policy changes. Are there any other policy changes or any summaries of policy changes that you want to uh, stress before we wrap up?
0: Well, I, so when it comes to policy change, I think power purchase agreements is, is low hanging fruit. I think the way that the wholesale markets operate is low hanging fruit. Um, but there's so much history and so many stake and such a big stakeholder process of people who are fully invested in the way it works now. Uh, I I'm not very optimistic that these big changes can be made. And we know, uh, not to be too political, but you know, if if we end up with the Democratic Party's energy platform, uh, which is pretty much masochistic for our economy, uh, there is absolutely no way these changes could be made. So um, I think we need some consistent understanding on both sides of the aisle of what really is and really isn't possible, uh, you know, under the laws of physics and the laws of trade. And so you know, changing the wholesale market system to better value to properly value reliability on the system and eliminate these fake transactions. uh, Those are a couple of the big ones. And of course, eliminating subsidies, tax subsidies for unreliables that turn around and use our tax dollars to raise our electricity costs. Those are the things I would like to see change in policy.
1: Yeah. And I I think the, the going after the subsidies is good, but one thing, I think the thing you're doing that's most important is going after the distortions and the pricing, because often people go after the <laughs> subsidies as low-hanging fruit and just say, oh, let's let wind compete on their merits, but that's still like the unreliable employee charging $14 an hour to under it is, the reliable it is. You, one at yeah, 15
0: if Yeah, if you don't fix the wholesale market system and recognize, you know, what those gross margins in the energy market real, are really for, they're really for reliability and, and make a change. Uh, then that's that's an implicit subsidy uh, that's built into the rules of the so-called free market wholesale system.
1: Yeah, and it's definitely the point I just want to emphasize again is it is not a free market system. Insofar as it's monopoly, it really can't be, but you can have a much more or less rational one. And today's is brazenly uh, irrational, in some ways worse than the cost plus one. Because at least with the cost plus one, you're sort of limited to like, you have some check on you can't build new power plants forever and you're building reliable ones. Whereas today, as you mentioned, there's just this unlimited ability to build these new unreliables that don't replace anything that add costs and then to claim that it's cheap and then to evade the issue of why is electricity becoming more expensive? Amen brother. Um, So just final thing, Tom, where can people learn more about you? And I think you mentioned you're a consultant and I would like to see you doing some more work. So if people are interested in in having you work on projects, how do they contact you?
0: You want my phone number? I I would say email.
1: Email is good. Phone number (laughs) seems a little intimate.
0: Sure. You can put my email on, on, on there. And uh, it is T F Stacy. That's T F S T A C Y at gmail.com
1: perfect is there anywhere else to learn about your work online the
0: institute, yeah the institute for energy research uh has published uh and published my work for the past several years those reports are called the levelized cost of electricity from existing generation resources and um you know if, if you like some heavy reading and and uh, uh finance and, and economics you know you can, you can read about some of my theories and work in those reports. They're available awesome, online. Awesome,
1: Tom. Well, I just want to say I, I, I really appreciate how much you've persevered on this issue because it is such a massive fraud going on. And it's one of these things where everybody is playing the game and acting like it makes sense. And when I started realizing, wait, this is an emperor's new clothes situation, it was like somebody has to work this through. It was cool that you had worked it through to the degree that you have right back
0: case. at you, at, right back at you, Alex. I, I appreciate your pre- perseverance and, and what you've been able to do with your podcast and and, and all of your work. And and I'm uh, happy to happy to collaborate anytime you want. But I know you're going to be at this far longer than I am because uh, you're a lot younger. So <laughs> keep at it. Keep at it.
1: All right. Thanks a lot, Tom.
0: It was great. See ya.
1: Thanks again to Tom Stacy for joining me. I know that topic can be technical. I tried to have us break it down in as much, in as accessible terminology as possible. But I hope you got that this is such an important topic. The whole way electricity is being priced is totally rigged against reliables. And it's just leading to this cacophony of fraudulent claims, fraudulent analyses, and it needs to change. And the basic thing is one way or another, reliability needs to be priced in. And one idea that I have that, that I didn't mention, but I think this is one way of doing It's just, you can also have the grids have a minimum threshold of reliability. That is to say, we will only accept bids if you can deliver it on demand in a certain kind of way. And the way you do that and you say, well, what doesn't that, isn't that against solar and wind? Will solar and wind ever be used? Well, maybe not, but one way they could be used is you would just have them, they would have to figure out the reliability issue outside the grid. So instead of parasiting on the reliables on the grid, and then it's super hard to know what what should you charge for it, what should you pay for this unreliable electricity, what is it, what is it really costing you? What you could have is just say, look, I don't care how you get us reliable electricity on the grid, but you have to it has to be like a black box of reliability. So let's say you figure out a way to have 50% of it be solar and 25% battery and 25% natural gas, great. But you have to deliver to the grid reliable electricity. And if you did it that way, then people would come up with the most efficient schemes possible. And if there are situations where you use solar, and I'll bet there would be, then you would do it, but you'd be delivering reliable. So it'd probably be, for example, let's just say you wanted to bid in some long-term way for electricity during a certain part of the day, if that was the way to do it. And because you could, let's say builds cheap solar panels in somewhere that's really sunny, but you know the sun isn't always working. So you have to have a natural gas plant coupled with it to give you all the electricity you need when the sun isn't shining. But you you put that package together, maybe you have some batteries to store some of the excess, whatever makes sense economically, great, you figure that out. But as far as you joining this grid with everyone else, you have to make a reliable contribution. It'd be kind of like if there are these unreliable workers and they came in at different times. Maybe they could come up with their own like temp agency. And all the all the employer needs to know is, okay, you're going to give us someone reliable to do this job at every time. You figure out how that happens. You want to use these unreliable workers together, have a few un, have a few reliable workers to back them up, great. But you deliver me something reliable. So that's definitely one way of doing it, is just banning unreliable power plants from the grid and just requiring that you have these hybrids. Whatever you have is a reliable, including hybrids that include the unreliables. But the people, the hybrid maker, the person who wants to include the unreliables, they have to figure out how to pay that cost themselves. They don't get to just put it uh, anonymously on everyone else. So that's another idea. But the, the key thing is we have to price in reliability and we're not, and I think Tom is doing great work, so that's why I wanted to bring him on. All right. That is basically it for this week. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Make sure to check out energytalkingpoints.com. I know people are focused on so many other issues, but energy is such a crucial issue. So go to energytalkingpoints.com and be prepared yourself for all the issues this election and share them with candidates. We're getting a lot of hits on the website. Uh, getting a lot of good feedback on the new website. We just need it to be shared more and more and more, and it'll be useful even after the elections, but elections are a particularly good time. Let's see what else. Uh, I'm doing a lot of virtual speaking these days, so if you want to contact me about that, you can go to industrialprogress.com speaking or just email me at, alex at alexepstein.com. Uh, to get on the newsletter, go to alexepsteinlist.com. Dot com, And if you want to support our efforts through helping our research and development and our marketing projects like energytalkingpoints.com, projects like The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels 2.0, become an accelerator at industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. All right, next week, I'll be back. I'm not sure what the topic is, but it'll be a good one. And I think we'll have another great guest. So until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour, life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy, Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.